Baptist Broadcasting. You're tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click the subscribe button. Thank you so much for for tuning in. Um, this is a, a, a podcast, really, that is my attempt to bring my pulpit ministry to to the internet, um, and uh, it's just basically an extension of uh, my pastoral ministry, and I, I really think that that's the right way to do If you're going to do social media and anything on the internet, uh, really, that has to do with theological discourse, uh, I don't think everyone who does that has to be a pastor or a trained theologian. I, I, I think that that's probably wise, but I do think it should be under the oversight of the local church. Um, and so, uh, really, my church is my priority. My family's my priority, then my church. And, and, and then, you know, whatever, whatever comes off of that is, is what comes here. And uh, I'm preaching through Matthew 6 right now. And so um, the sermon for this coming Lord's Day is, is going to be on piety and the nature of true piety in contrast with false piety from verses 16 to, to 18. Um, you know, when you, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, uh, you know, for they sadden their countenance and so on. And the idea there is that the hypocrites uh, pretend to be someone they're not, and uh, they want everyone else to think that they are pious when in fact it's it's their piety is really as thin as a veneer or uh, a, a a faux um, covering and um, and it's really what I might call like a, a religious camouflage and uh, so I was thinking as I was thinking about that I just I just kind of started wrapping up the manuscript today um, and as I was thinking about it thought about um, the Second London Confession and uh, the articles in the chapter on the church, chapter 26, which is the longest chapter in the confession. And I started thinking about various kinds of legalisms. Um, and legalism is one of those things we automatically think, when we think legalism, we automatically think of, of what we might call soteriological legalism. Uh, when we think of legalism, we automatically start to think, uh, well, legalism is that which says you must do this, 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 and this in order to be saved. That is soteriological legalism. But actually, there are other kinds of legalism. There are ecclesiological legalisms or ecclesiastical legalisms. There are practical legalisms and so on and so forth. And 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 there's a lot of overlap between practical legalism and ecclesiastical legalism, because ecclesiastical legalism is always practical legalism, but practical legalism isn't always ecclesiastical legalism, if that makes sense. So as I was thinking about that, I, th I, I thought about, you know, the various run-ins I've had personally with with various kinds of legalisms in myself, as well as 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 in those that that I know and 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 have talked with. And 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 so I I have I have this burden and and this this comes out I think this came out at the very beginning of my 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 ministry at, at Victory 
uh, I have this burden to clarify the gospel in opposition to legalism and then to clarify the law in opposition to antinomianism so that gospel and law are kept distinct but correctly contextualized and understood and defined um, so that the gospel doesn't become law and the law doesn't become gospel. Um, and then in, in, if either of that those transactions happen or confusions happen, then we lose both. Right, so it's very important that we that we keep that we keep them, or the distinction between the two that we keep it front and center, and and we always, in some ways, every Lord's Day is a reminder as to the distinction between those two. Um, so today, what I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about ecclesiastical legalism, and how you know it, it's easy for us to say, well we reject soteriological legalism. We, we reject that we have to do anything to be saved. But it's easy for us to, while rejecting that soteriological aspect of legalism, it's easy for us to then put stumbling blocks in front of other uh, ordinances or um, things that are, 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 are given to us in, in Christ as well. For example, the local church. Um, it is, it is easy for us to put stumbling blocks between, uh, you know, our local churches and membership. And so, in other words, uh, what, what, what can happen and what has happened many times throughout history is it is said, well, you don't have to do this or, or do that to be saved. Salvation is free grace. But in order to be part of our communion, in order to be part of our congregation, you have to mark off these boxes. This is what you have to do. Um, and, and usually there are things that are, are added to the scriptures or at least things that are in the scriptures are wildly reinterpreted in a way that is just totally ahistorical and, and, um, and, and, uh, and not consistent with the rest of the, uh, of the word of God. And so there's a there's essentially what what ends up happening is there's there are obstacles that are man-made obstacles that are placed between church membership at a local church and those who would petition for church membership. So what I would like to do is I would like to look at paragraphs 4 and 6 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26. And uh and look at the question, who is Lord of the church and who gets to set the terms? Who, Because the reality is, is we're not lords of the church. We don't get to set the terms, whether it's the whole congregation or whether it's one or two men. No human being now on this earth gets to set the terms uh, for who joins the church and who doesn't. All right. In other words, Church membership isn't our standard to set. And the behavior of churchly societies is not our standard to set. That standard comes from Christ through his word. And so uh, two very helpful paragraphs in chapter 26 or paragraphs 4 and 6 of the Second London. And uh, paragraph 4 says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, that's true in a universal sense. That's true in, 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 in the sense of big C church. 
but it's also true in the sense of local church. We, we understand that every local church has its offices and its laypersons. The only two offices ordained to continue on to the end of the age are pastor and deacon or elder and deacon, however you want to say it. And uh, But we also understand that those offices are themselves defined by God's word, their responsibilities and the limits of their authority or their leadership are defined in God's word. And so those offices are not blank checks to some kind of weird churchly or ecclesiastical legalistic authoritarianism. Christ is the head of the church, and the elder or the pastor works within the instructions that Christ has given for his church. No more and hopefully no less. So the fourth paragraph goes on to read. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, no one else, no man, no pope, no pastor, uh, no affluent church member or anything like that, no deacon board. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Okay, now... Consider the terms that are used there. All the power for calling, that is the calling in terms of the calling of, of, of pastors and deacons, institution, and the order or the nature of the government of the church is invested in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? This, it's, it's in the Lord Jesus Christ that, that the prerogatives for all those things are chiefly vested in a sovereign and supreme manner. Neither can the Pope of Rome in any sense, be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God, whom the Lord shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, part of the reason the Pope is marked out as the Antichrist or as that Antichrist is because of his usurpation of the role of Christ in the church. So the Pope has decided to essentially proclaim himself as one who sits in the place of Christ. That happens in the papacy, but it can also happen at a more localized level. It doesn't have to happen in Vatican City, in Italy, or in Rome. It can happen anywhere in the world where men decide that they are going to usurp the authority of Christ and do things their way, thereby stepping off the way that Christ has commanded. All right, instituting that Christ things that Christ never himself instituted, commanding things that Christ never himself commanded. All right. So we have to keep that front and center that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The moment we we forget that the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, then all sorts of ecclesiastical legalisms arise, or at least we become vulnerable to all sorts and kinds of, of, of ecclesiastical legalisms. Now, the, the, uh, the second paragraph that I wanted to read from chapter 26 is, chap- or is, is uh, paragraph 6, which says, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ. Okay, so how do you tell, uh, uh, like, what, 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 uh, what is the form of a church member? 
the form of a church member doesn't take the shape of, of, of what I command or what I instruct or what I define. The form of a church member takes the shape of what Christ has said, because it's it, what, what evidences their, uh, their adequacy, if you will, for church membership or their, their qualification for church membership is the fact that they are obedient unto that call of Christ as Christians. Generally, not perfectly, of course. We're not, we're not saying that they're perfectly obedient, but there's a general recognition and obedience to that call of Christ not an obedience to what I have said or what the congregation has said, but what Christ has said through his word. Now, here's another very important clause. It says, and do these, these members do willingly consent to walk together. Now, how do they walk together? Is it in ways that they've determined for themselves? Is it in ways that, uh, that perhaps has been established by longstanding cultural and practical traditions? No, <clears throat> they walk together according to the appointment of Christ, all right? They walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. Again, that's a very important paragraph because what it, what it secures for us is a commitment to the words of Scripture as our directive in terms of what a of what a church should look like, in terms of what membership looks like at a local church, in terms of 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 how someone, a member candidate actually becomes a member, and so on and so forth. All of those terms are set forth and laid out by Scripture. And the moment we go beyond Scripture, or in addition to Scripture, or beside Scripture, and say, yeah, we have Scripture, but we also have this, 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 and this that, that, that's expected of you, is the moment that we deny the sufficiency of Scripture, and it's the moment that we attempt to take the place of Christ. So it's very important, I think, to understand what makes a church, a, a local church, a church. It's not what we do. It's not what we say. It's ultimately what Christ has done and said and what Christ has done and said through his holy word. Uh, the reason this is important is because while it's not, while, while we're not, while we wouldn't be saying you have to do this, this, and this in order to be saved, we would be saying that you have to do this, 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 and this in order to be part of the community that Christ himself has founded. Um, and by the way, this, 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 and this is not what Christ has instituted. It's something we've made up. And so in that sense, we make ourselves Lord of the church. We make ourselves the boss of the church, if you will. And instead of letting Christ speak and understanding that the word of Christ is sufficient for the definition and the operation and the practice of the church, we make ourselves that litmus test. Uh, a very dangerous place to be in. And in fact, it's one that, uh, uh, that, that needs to be repented of promptly uh, because it is, there's nothing more contrary to the word of Christ than a person taking the place of Christ over something that Christ himself has instituted, namely the local church. So hopefully this was helpful. Again, there, there are different kinds of legalisms. There's soteriological legalism, practical legalism, ecclesiastical legalism, and so on. And, and here we're dealing with ecclesiastical legalism. There are all sorts of uh, practical legalisms as well in the sense that um, uh, 
certain things may be expected of of members, certain cultural norms or whatever may be expected of members even outside the four walls of the church, and 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 that's a problem also. And and uh, there are things that. Uh, men have tried to do throughout history to bind the consciences of others that are simply not scriptural things. Um, and here, uh, you know, Romans 14 applies. Uh, we are not allowed to bind the consciences of others uh, apart from the Word of God. Uh, and if anything binds our conscience, it must be God himself. Another very important place in uh, in the confession is is chapter 21, of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience, um, Article 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience. So just as, he, just as Christ alone is Lord of the church, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. I hope this was a helpful episode for you guys. Again, uh, if it was beneficial, please share it and uh, give a thumbs up. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel. God bless.